Welcome to Animal Cafe, where you'll hear weekly interviews with experts and enthusiasts working to better the lives of animals, and a monthly segment reviewing fun, fabulous, and useful products for your pets. Check our website, animalcafe.co, for more. Hi, and welcome back to Animal Cafe. This is Mary Haight, your animal welfare correspondent. Allie Phillips is here today to talk about her book, the award-winning How Shelter Pets Are Brokered for Experimentation, Understanding Pound Seizure. A former prosecutor, vice president of public policy at the American Humane Association and a shelter volunteer, she is currently founder of Sheltering Animals and Families Together and director of the National Center for Prosecution of Animal Abuse at the National District Attorneys Association, where she trains criminal justice professionals about the importance of taking animal cruelty seriously. Hi, Allie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mary. It's great to be here. Well, congratulations on your book award. Well, thank you. It certainly was a labor of love writing this book. It was painful, but it needed to be written. These things often are, but, you know, the more we know, the more we can do to change things. I completely agree, and so many people are not aware of this practice of pound seizure because it really is a dirty little secret. Yeah, I, I have to wonder, what were some of the first reactions when, it was, when your book was released? People were stunned. They were absolutely shocked. They could not believe the shelter, which when you think of the name shelter, that should mean a safe haven. And so they could not believe that their local shelter or shelters anywhere in this country could be selling or even giving animals away for free to research facilities. And so it's really done the job that I wanted by raising awareness, but yet there are still so many more people who haven't heard about this. I know it takes forever to filter through, doesn't it? It does, it does, but this is something that I have been consistently working on for, oh gosh, 14 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting the message out, that's, that's the name of the game. How, how did you come across this practice? Well, it was, it was back in the year 2000 when I was uh, volunteering at my local animal shelter. Uh, I lived in Michigan at the time, and I noticed that some of the animals just started disappearing, and, and this was a shelter that was struggling. It was a, you know, a municipal animal control shelter. And I knew that they had a high euthanasia rate. And that's exactly why this group of volunteers formed. And, you know, so I didn't think too much of it. Then I started asking questions. And I noticed that the shelter staff would look at each other very oddly when I would ask, you know, hey, where did this cat go? Or, you know, did this dog get euthanized? And they weren't giving me straight answers. Now, at the time, I was a prosecuting attorney. So I am trained to question people. I am trained to look for people who are lying. And I knew that they were lying to me about something. And it wasn't until one day when I was I was holding this beautiful um, gray torty cat named Lilac. She was with her son, Linus, who was about three months old. And I was holding her and actually telling her that I was going to get her and her son out by the weekend. If they didn't get adopted by the weekend, I was going to find a foster home because they were next on the list because I always kept a list of who had been there the longest, and we would just methodically get them out to foster care or send them to another rescue group. 
And so I was holding her when a man came in to the staff room and took her out of my arms. And I asked him, I said, oh, are you, are you adopting Lilac? Mm-hmm. He had such a cold look in his eyes, and he said to me, I'm taking her to go save lives. And he walked away with her. And I, I was speechless. I, I didn't know what to think, so I ran up to the front office and I said, who is the man that just took this cat out of my hand? And one of the staff people, they looked terrified to talk about it. It was truly a dirty little secret that they were going to get fired if they talked about. And one of the staff persons inside and said, that Class B dealer. And I'm like, what the heck is a Class B dealer? Wow. said, he's an animal broker. He takes animals from shelters and he sells them for research. And it took me about 0.3 seconds to immediately run back to the cat room. I couldn't find him. I couldn't find Lilac. I ran back into um, the back area of the shelter where tears were not welcomed, but at that point, I didn't care. I ran all over that place looking for her. I ran out into the back parking lot. I couldn't find her. I couldn't find him. I ran back up to the front desk, and I, and I said, I will pay to adopt her right now. You will make more money from me in an adoption fee than you will in, a re- in, in this you know, fee to sell her to research. Mm-hmm. Shelter director came out with such a smug look on his face because he didn't like us sticking our nose into this business. Mm-hmm. Said, "No, she's gone off to research," and he would. I was inconsolable at that point, and so it's this little gray tortie named Lilac who really spun off my advocacy to where I ended the practice in that shelter since then went around the entire state of Michigan, which is one of the worst states for this, and ended it um, with working with other people in all the shelters except for one so far, and then started working on it at the federal level. That, that's, you know, that had to be the most shocking thing to have happen. As a shelter volunteer, I know I've been there, uh, but I never had to go through anything like that. It was terrible. Um, I, I still get chucked up like even right now, thinking about it. Yeah, I can, I can tell because it, 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 there's such a panic that ensues. It's like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, and, and that, that's really, um, we mobilized and really spread the word across the entire state because at the time we had about 15 shelters in Michigan doing this, and we spread the word that we weren't going to tolerate where we were, and after working a full day, as, as a prosecutor in a very, very stressful job, I came home every night, put in a minimum of five hours every night, worked full night, did 12, 15-hour days on the weekends of figuring out what animals were in the shelter, whose time was up, who was going to get sold to the dealer, and then organize mass rescues. And it was exhausting. And, and I know shelters are, are doing this right now, and it, it's just it's so unnecessary to do this because that's not what our shelters are for. Exactly. And speaking of that, there's a history to this pound seizure idea, uh, and you explain all about that in your book, but could you give us a brief outline here of when and why did this practice start? 
Well, it, I mean, it's been going on for, for decades. It, it really has been going on for decades, and it's really, um, you know, the pharmaceutical and the research uh, industry felt that they could use our pet overpopulation crisis as a way to promote their business. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, and it's interesting because this happened right around the time that I was born, but there was a dog named Pepper in the state of Pennsylvania who was stolen out of her front yard. She was stolen and trafficked out of state to the state of New York to a hospital where they conducted research on her when they were testing the pacemaker. And Pepper died in the experiment. Well, her family was relentless in tracking her down. And they were able to track her, you know, all the way through an Amish dog breeder and then eventually to one of these animal brokers and eventually to the hospital, and they didn't get there in time. And what happened to Pepper, because she was stolen for this, uh, which has happened to so many animals, uh, it, it prompted the Federal Animal Welfare Act, which is still in existence to this day, and the purpose of the Federal Animal Welfare Act is to prevent pets from being stolen and used in research, and it's also to regulate the research industry, these Class B dealers, and even the shelters that are giving or selling the animals away. Even though the law is there, it, we still have a big problem. To this day, in this advanced age, where every second of the day we have major advancements in science and technology, and I just cannot wrap my brain around why we are still testing on animals, which was something that was being done in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, um, I, I was wondering, can, can you take us through uh, who is involved in this brokering? You were talking about the Class B dealer coming into the shelter. Who else is involved in this activity? Well, there is, it depends. I mean, it's different in every state and in every jurisdiction. Um, you know, so I can primarily speak to what to what I encountered. Um, some shelters will sell or give directly to the research facility, and some of these research facilities are actually training facilities like veterinary schools, medical schools. And so a veterinary school may just walk right into a shelter and say, we need five dogs so we can practice our surgical techniques. And then the animals are euthanized at the end. They're not even given a chance to, you know, come back to the shelter and be adopted. Um, so sometimes the research or training institutions go right to the shelter. Sometimes it's the Class B dealer that goes in. Um, you know, but then animals are being gathered up from a variety of different locations. Some are legal, some are not. Uh, there are some breeders who sell their animals to research, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, so, you know, there's a big concern about stolen pets being brokered through the research industry. And it's such a concern that this whole issue came up several years ago um, with the National Institutes of Health, where they actually uh, were ordered by Congress, the United States Congress, to look into this issue. And they came out with a report that thankfully said 
that the research industry no longer needs to rely on Class B dealers to have animals for their research. And, you know, while no changes have been made, that was a very powerful recommendation that came from leaders in the research industry. And I, and I actually should go back and, and clarify why shelter animals are so needed is they're actually called random source animals. Random being that they're not purebred. There are, there's class A dealers that actually breed animals for research. They breed rats. They breed beagle dogs. And they know their genetic history. There's no mystery about what their genetic makeup is. But there's a lot of research programs out there that want the random source animals where you don't know their background. And so they're basically taking Fluffy the cat who was found in a dumpster eating a chicken bone who may be covered in fleas and mange and Lord knows what. They're random. They don't know the background. Um, it is these Class B dealers that broker the random source animals, not the purebred. So that's why they go into shelters or they'll go to breeders that don't have the purebred animals. Um, so there's all different types of dealers that are brokering these animals, but it's the Class B dealers that are under the most scrutiny, and slowly, one by one, they are becoming extinct, to the point where today we only have six of these random source Class B dealers in the entire country, and I'm sad to say that three of the six are in my home state of Michigan. And I think some of those are on their way out, too. There was a story, I think, back in December uh, about um, a couple who were Class B dealers that were uh, in court. Yes, there was, there was one Class B dealer out of Pennsylvania who was closed down recently after being indicted on federal charges for identity theft and mail fraud involving the brokering of these random source animals. And that's why... We're down to six, and even of the six, three of those are under federal investigation, and one of them has a federal complaint that's already been filed against him. And so it makes me wonder why our governmental shelters, why anyone would do business with a group of individuals who are so fraught with fraud and illegal conduct. It, it is so completely unnecessary, and yet it is taking so long to put an end to this, even though recommendations have been made to Congress to federally put an end to this. Yeah, that, uh, that whole 2015 phase-out, uh, what, what is that about? Well, that's relating to, um, I mentioned that uh, there is, there was a a group of researchers and professionals and animal welfare professionals that came together several years ago. Um, and it was because Congress asked them to look into the issue of Class B dealers and stolen pets being used in research. And they came up with a report that said, we can still do our job. We don't need Class B dealers or their animals to do our job. It is as a result of that the National Institutes of Health has come out with a pledge to slowly end the use of these random source shelter cats and dogs in their research, and their, their pledge is to end by 2015. And while that may seem really wonderful, they can end this now. They could have ended that three years ago when the report came out. 
Yes, it's interesting. It used to things used to take a lot longer. Uh, we were just, we were talking at the beginning of this interview about how long it takes the word to get out. Even in the times of the internet, there's so much information out there, people just can't take it all in. Right. But when you're talking about instituting a new policy, it's very simple. You write the paper and you email it to everyone <laughs> and say, exactly. this is what we're doing going forward. You know. Exactly. And, yeah. these, and these researchers, they are supposed to be the best of the best. And yet they cling to these incredibly outdated, barbaric practices. But isn't some of the current thinking in the medical community on animal research pretty progressive? Uh, don't they not want to do it anymore? I've, I've read a lot of uh, articles on things like that. Right. And there are advancements being made, but not nearly at the speed that other advancements are being made. Um, because we do have this old mentality that the research industry just continues to cling to. And they go to the National Institutes of Health to get grants to conduct research on animals. So, but there's wonderful organizations like Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine that is really spearheading not using animals, and they come at it from a medical and scientific background. Exactly. That was the group I was thinking of earlier. Yes, and there's the American Anti-Vivisection. They have an entire division called Animal Learn, where they are actually creating non-animal testing models for veterinary students and medical students, because I think we all agree that a medical student and a veterinary student, they need to get their hands on what their future clients are going to be. I certainly wouldn't want to go to a doctor that's never worked on a human being. <laughs> <laughs> and, but they don't need to work on an animal and then kill the animal. Yeah. There are ways that they can do this. So, you know, these two organizations are doing some fantastic work. But it's still amazing of how many veterinary and medical schools are still clinging to these old practices. It, it really is reflective of every other advancement in society. You've always got a core group that won't let go of the past um, because they can't, they can't deal with change. Exactly. And I don't know why as human beings we're so afraid of change because <laughs> change is a good thing. I mean, when I look at computers and cell phones, as soon as you buy one, the next day it's already outdated because the technology industry gets it and they they understand that change is progress and progress is a good thing but yet <laughs> the research industry hasn't gotten that memo well they don't want to be put out of business or jobs and uh, this is what happens when uh, you become institutionalized I think exactly hmm. so uh, how can people help stop this practice well um, they certainly, I would recommend buying my book because if you want to advocate to MS practice, you really need to understand all the nuances. Um, you know, one thing that's very helpful is to go to my website. I actually have a chart of the states that have disallowed or allow pound seizure. And so if you live in one of those states, I would call your local shelter and ask them if they practice this. Now, a lot of shelters aren't going to admit it because 
if, if the shelter was publicly admitting that they sell or give animals to research, that will bring their donations, their volunteers, and even people adopting to a screeching halt because nobody wants to support a shelter like that. So what I recommend to people is if you're really horrified by this practice, and everyone should be, contact animal rescue groups in your community because the animal rescue groups know what the municipal shelters are doing. Because the rescue groups go into the shelters, they pull the animals out and rehome them. You know, a lot of them have partnerships. Because that's what my group did. We were a partner to animal control to help them raise their adoption rate. And that's how we found out. So I would go to the rescue groups and ask them because they have no reason to withhold the truth on it. And then if you find out that this is happening in your community, if the shelter won't end it, if your community leaders won't end it, that's when you go public. And, and there's a big portion of my book that talks about successful advocacy techniques that not only myself, but others engaged in to really end this practice. Because communities speak very loud and clear. And when you're dealing with a governmental or a municipal shelter, your tax dollars are paying for that shelter. You absolutely have a voice as to what that shelter can do. Um, so those are some good initial steps. Um, but some other steps that you can take are to just be very cognizant of your cosmetics, bath and body products, household cleaners. Make sure that they say cruelty-free on them. And if, if you're wondering, you know, what companies test on animals or don't test on animals, I love the organization called Leaping Bunny. And you can go to Leaping. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. <laughs> and it's, it's actually run by the American Anti-Vivisection. And it's through a coalition of organizations that created this Leaping Bunny coalition. I actually used to represent American Humane on that coalition, so I know about their work. And what is beautiful about Leaping Bunny that distinguishes them from any other um, cruelty-free lifting is that the companies have to have not only products that haven't been tested on animals, but the ingredients that make up those products cannot be tested on animals. And that's the distinction because a lot of times you see, you know, a bottle of lotion that says, this product has not been tested on animals. That's good but the ingredients may have tested on animals. That's a great point, and that was something that I was looking at when they, uh, Europe came out with the ban on using animals for um, cosmetic research. Yeah. And uh, I was so pleased that they actually said ingredients. I thought, well, yeah. wow, this is really going to work then. <laughs> exactly, and, and hopefully the United States will not be too far behind, but I suspect we will be very slow to implement such a widespread change like Europe has. Yeah, but I think uh, Europe is going to have a big influence. I agree, I mm -hmm. agree, and there's nothing like peer pressure to make us do the right thing. <laughs> well, and, you know, Maybelline, you want to sell products, you're going to have to do it this way. <laughs> yes, and you know, and, and it's so sad, um, there are some companies who have actually lost their leaping bunny status because they decided to sell in China, because China mandates. Yeah, they require tests. it. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I was a big Mary Kay 
um, client, and after 15 years, I pulled my business from Mary Kay because they made the choice to sell in China, and even though they don't test here in the United States, I decided I'm not going to give them money because they made the choice. They don't have to sell in China. They made mm -hmm. that choice. Mm -hmm. And quite a few businesses have lost their leaking bunny status and they're losing clients because of it as people become more aware of this. So the more you know. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's just such a simple little thing that we can do every day because if we stop buying the Maybellines and the L'Oreal's and the Procter & Gamble's of the world, they're going to get the message because consumers drive the business. And if we stop buying products that are tested on animals, they will get the hint. And some of them are already starting to get the hint because they're creating lines, product lines, that are cruelty-free. Maybe not the ingredients are cruelty-free, but at least the product is. So they're starting to listen. And we can completely change this entire business. We can dry up the demand. And if we dry up the demand, and they're not going to use animals in testing, and our shelters are going to be a safe place. So uh, what was your web address if people want to get in touch with you? It is alliephillips.com. A-L-L-I-E-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S.com. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Allie. Oh, thank you, Mary. It's, it's always wonderful to talk about this, and hopefully it's, it's opened the eyes of even just one person who can then go out and make a change. Thanks for being with us today at Animal Cafe. You can find Allie Phillips' book, How Shelter Pets Are Brokered for Experimentation, Understanding Pound Seizure, at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. That's all for today from Animal Cafe. Thanks for listening.